Have you ever wondered what it takes to scale a social enterprise from a simple idea into a thriving community and what it really takes to raise sponsorship money for a purpose-driven organisation? We'll be exploring these questions and many more with our guest today, Ashley Ainsley, the co-founder of Colour in Tech. Founded in 2016, this non-profit is at the forefront of diversifying the tech space. With a bold vision to make Europe the most inclusive tech hub in the entire world, they've raised a substantial amount of grant funding, including a $250,000 grant from Google, which was the largest they had given at the time. They've also managed to build a community of over 30,000 members. Under Ashley's guidance, Color and Tech has scaled to the stage where they are now where they're turning over millions. Ashley's journey is a masterclass in scaling a purpose-driven organization, securing corporate sponsorship, and leading a team with vision and impact. This interview provides a blueprint for anyone looking to navigate the complexities of corporate sponsorship on scaling a purpose-driven organization and on leading a team. If you're ready to uncover the secrets that Ashley used to transform his vision into impactful action, stay tuned. And if it's your first time here, welcome. This is 1000 Voices, your go-to resource if you're a Black Briton looking to drive change but you're stuck at the how. In this podcast, we unpack the journeys of Black British changemakers. We unpack the tools that they use, we explore the barriers that they've shattered and the ways in which you can do it too. I'm your host, Tevin Kitto, and without further ado, this is 1000 Voices in here, we have Ashley Ainsley. So for yourself, most people are going to know you for your work with Colour and Tech. Um, maybe the Black Tech Fest as well knows all in one, but the Black Tech Fest, when I was looking into it, I hasn't even been around for that long, but it's a it's a big thing. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, we say it's Europe's largest event for black technologists, and it is. There literally isn't anything as big as what we do for the community that we do it for. So <laughs> that's been a journey of... Um, Kind of, well, that was our fourth edition in 2023. We're going year five and we're going bigger and better. I oh, can't wait to share some of our plans. Um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's been a growth journey over that kind of period of time. Obviously, a lot of people think we started it as a response to like George Floyd or the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. The idea actually happened from before then. We were working on it and then all of that stuff happened. Um, and a little bit of background. I know you didn't laugh through this, but I'll go mm. into it. A little bit of the background for it was, um, I call it call for gaslighting. I mean, we were getting gaslit as a community. People saying there aren't black people in leadership because we didn't exist or we weren't applying or we didn't get in the opportunities. Almost questioning like, did we exist or were we good enough to be there in the first place? And there's such a lack of data in terms of the proportion of black people in tech, the proportion of people in um, the workplace, um, that it was really hard to have a counter argument to that. Not because it wasn't correct, but just because you know, hit me with some data. All I can see is that the people aren't at the top. And all these mm. companies were effectively saying that they're, they're fine. That wasn't a problem, effectively, that, you know, society, you know, people weren't really talking openly around race or anything. And, and that was the narrative. And we were like, well, we kind of know that's incorrect, but how on earth do we do it? So in a way, we came up with the concept of Black Tech Fest. To shortcut that, it's like, gosh, we don't have the data. How about we just bring as many people in one place and show them that we actually exist? Highlight the great work that people are doing in the space where people don't have those reflections or those stories or they don't know that this person's the CEO of that or that person's the managing director of that. And let's give that opportunity, whether you're an intern all the way up to a CEO to like, you know, talk, but not talk about being black. Like, you know, at Black Tech Fest, we have very few sessions around anything like that. It's more about how people have either excelled in their careers or what's actually going on in their actual day jobs. Let's talk about the tech. And, you know, that's 
that's great. And that can be social media, that can be music and AI, that can be um, data, it can be whatever it is. But let's actually talk about what people get paid to do. Uh, I don't want to be on a stage talk about the fact that I'm black. Like, let me talk about my business. That's what I want to talk about. That's what I do. That's what I'm passionate about. So let's normalize that. Let's normalize that in the community. Let's normalize the fact, you know, I see lots of events and conferences and it's like, Back in the day, it's still really bad, but you know, you'd never see any black leaders on the panels, or they'd always say, oh, We're struggling to find women. So, like 60% of our audience is women, 70% of our speakers are women. I never had that problem, so I just I don't accept it as an excuse. Like, it's possible if you work on it, you put intention into it. So, yeah, like it kind of came as a response to that in terms of some of the work, and then. Yeah, first two years, obviously, the pandemic hit, we couldn't come together in person, but we did great things virtually. That gave us a good footing, great brand, and a good opportunity then to get people excited about our first edition in person, which we did back um, last year in 2022. And um, this year, we had 5,000 people through the door, um, another 12,000 people online registered. And, um, you know, the plan for that is to to grow that. So, you know, next year, it's our fifth year. I want to get to another 50% on top of that. Can we get to 7,500? You know, that's what we're aiming for, I think. There's no reason why we can't do it in a amazing city like London. And now we've got people even flying in. So from my perspective, like, yeah, let's get it there. It's quite interesting when you talk about the, the first of these corporations that were like, basically saying they ain't really got an issue, but the data isn't there. So they, they, you can't really challenge them because mm. the data literally doesn't exist. But then you've been able to put together these events and these panels and get all of these different black people in these areas of tech to be able to come and share next, um, on their experience. It's kind of it reminded me a little bit about a thousand voices in the sense that we've got, um, as of recording this, 65 episodes are out. And then when I've started it and I've, some of the people I've come across, I'm like, wow, this person is so cool. Such a background. Great. But then they've got a profile. We don't necessarily know about them. Or maybe they haven't been platformed in the way they needed to be platformed and mm. their voices amplified in a way that we probably should be amplifying these kind of people's voices. Um, and something else, which I like that you mentioned is that on these panels, when people come and discuss, they all come and talk about them being black. And that's a, a bit of a qualm that I have, that a lot of times when either a black person's in a, in a senior position, not every single time, but a lot of times, if you look at these, a big, these big corporations, oftentimes the most senior black person in the corporation is going to be like a global head of DNA or something like that. But it's, tied some something very directly mm. tied to their race yeah as opposed to another c-suite position oftentimes mm. and oftentimes when we have these panels and discussions and stuff that black people are coming called to come and talk on things like dni and their race and their experience as a black person which of course is a topic in of itself but we discuss that topic a lot you know um and there's other things that it's not it's not our only Thing that we could talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of experience. Like, I've been working in tech for 10 years. You know, I mean, I've got thoughts on lots of different things that are going on. And yeah, no, exactly right. Like, we, it's not to say that there isn't space for those conversations. We have a couple of them, but I keep it minimal because there's so much more that we can talk about. And that is important to talk about, but that's one of the conversation. It's not the conversation. And we want to make sure that we're showing that there's a variety and a breadth of expertise and, 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 and knowledge that we have as a community and value that we can add, whether you're building a startup or you're, you know, working for a big tech company or you're, you know, looking to get your first job. Like there's so much value in the community that we can share and actually share to allies as well, share to people who want to come along, learn, experience things, haven't been in this place, which is majority black working professionals. It really disappoints me sometimes when people talk to me about the events. It's like, you know, they've been working for 20, 30 years and it's the first time that they've been in an environment like this. And I'm like, that's so disappointing. Why? Like, the reason we set that up was because, as I said, there wasn't any data and no one was doing anything. So we're like, well, it doesn't exist. We might as well be the people to do it. But 
I want to, I want that to be more, I want that to be more. And now there are a few more spaces where these things become more frequent and, and, and I'm, I'm here for that because, you know, we're here to serve the community. And I, I generally believe that, you know, if somebody's over there doing something really good, that's good for us because it normalizes people's expectations of what we can do. Um, and therefore people will give us more opportunities because they expect that we can deliver on them. Million percent. How did the guy from South London go from South London to Forbes 30 on 30 and <laughs> Black Tech Fest? If how many say 5,000 people through the door and another 12,000 yeah. signed up at a relatively young age? Yeah, yeah, was yeah. All yeah. This stuff, still 30. <laughs> <laughs> was this stuff like on the agenda? When you were young, did you always, did you look forward to think, oh yeah, I'm going to be able to, I'm going to drive some kind of change. I'm going to be successful in my craft. Was this journey on the cards or did it just stumble upon it by accident it's a mixture of kind of two things so like south london was never like a barrier for me if that makes sense i, ne I never look at south london as well the reason i couldn't achieve something or couldn't do anything like it, in a way it's one of the reasons i am able to do what i do because i grew up in fundamentally i grew up in a really diverse part of town like i grew up in lucian borough like really mixture of affluence ethnicities genders everything effectively so I just saw that that was the norm. You know, when you're growing up, you don't, you don't, you know, you don't comprehend the rest of the world. You see what you see. So for me, being in a really diverse environment, seeing smart kids at school who are black or not, like that was, that was my norm. So that was the case. And I mean, to, to cut a few stories short, long story short, I, I remember when I got into technology in two things, basically. And for context, you can be in tech and never write a line of code. I've still not written functional line of code in production software. Dabbled around and maybe pressed send on, you know, maybe pushed out a few things that, that shouldn't have been out, but you know, that's not what anyone's paying me to do. But the reality is, I remember two things. Um, I was, I wasn't affluent at all when I was growing up. Um, you know, I wasn't, uh, my family wasn't, um, I was the first in my immediate family to go to university, et cetera. But, um, we had dial up. I was still old enough to remember when you had to like take the phone cord out. And for kids, young people don't listen in today. We don't have broadband in the same way we have today, where it's ubiquitous. You've got 4G. We don't have phones. And basically, if you want to use the internet, you have to go onto something and actually use it. <laughs> yeah. um, they, they don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was, that was the case. And in a way, like I appreciate where we are now because of that. But I remember when I discovered two things. Wikipedia was the first. I was like, wow, I can do my homework so much more quickly now. What used to take an hour of researching my RV homework now took 10 minutes because Wikipedia had it all on one page. Copy and paste, kept getting A's. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that was it. Like, do you know what I mean? This, I knew Wikipedia before my teachers knew it. Um, and then the second thing was um, Google Earth. I remember hearing that Google were like going to take a picture of every road on the planet. I was like, what, what am I doing that for? Um, one amazing business decision. I was playing around Google Earth. I couldn't travel. Like, I, I, we couldn't afford to. So the reality was, like, if I wanted to see what a beach in the Philippines looked like, I had to go on this thing and now I could see it. I didn't have to look at the travel brochure anymore. And, like, I was like, I don't know what that is, but I want to do it. Long story short, I was good at school. Um, I was competitive in the sense that, like, I was like, look, if I'm going to be in this school thing, I might not necessarily enjoy it, but I might as well do it well. I might as well be the best. Like, if I'm going to spend the same hours in the class, why am I not getting an A or an A star or whatever? Um, and that was the case for, like, all of my subjects. So yeah, I'd work hard, I'd revise hard, you know, work smart as well. But I wasn't going to waste my time at school. It's like, if I'm there, like, yeah, I can have a joke or a laugh, but at the end of the day, like, might as well do it well. <laughs> like, what am I sitting there to come up with bad grades for? So, so I was always working as hard as I could, but I was good at geography. I was good at science, decent at maths, decent at English, but I wasn't the best in my class at 
almost anything, even geography, that's debatable. Um, but long story short, unexpected wasn't anything I particularly envisaged, but I managed to get all A's and A stars in my GCSEs. Um, and that happened. I was like, oh, maybe there was something in there. Um, again, you don't realize this. No one's pushing me. No one's telling me, oh, you should succeed. Like, I didn't go to Eton and people were like, oh, there you go. Um, anyway, went to do my subjects at my A level. I did geography, economics, biology, and PE because I still love sport. I love, I love it. Maybe that's the thing about black men. They always push into sport, but that's what I did. Um, and anyway, I got four A's at AS level one. It's like, oh yeah, shoot. I got a hundred percent in my geography and my apology guys, um, and 97 in economics. And I was like, oh, okay. Maybe I should look at universities. So again, for me, I was like, well, I might as well go for the best university. I got the grades. Why would, why wouldn't I not try and shoot for that? So I applied to Oxford. Long story short, got in. Um, there's a bit of serendipity in there, but going from Lucian to Oxford was a, crazy experience. I can imagine. Like going from one of the most diverse places in the world to one of the least diverse in 60 miles. <laughs> it was just like crazy. Um, and I, ha- I had a really good time in many ways. I experienced some things that were particularly unpleasant as well. But um, I had so much opportunity as a result of going there. People come there and try and recruit you. Like, a lot of my friends like didn't have any of that experience. Um, and long story short, I got connected to some people who knew that Google were hiring in the UK. I, I just thought Google was just a Silicon Valley thing. I thought this is a search box. Remember, I was mm. like, I don't know what that is I want to do. I don't know what it was. Um, but anyway, they were like, okay, you know, you should apply. And in the Google application, they're like, oh, tell us about your favorite Google product and why. What did I talk about? Google Earth, Google Maps. Um, what did I write my dissertation on? Google Earth, Google Maps. I did my interview. I knew more about Google Earth, Google Maps than the people interviewed me and they gave me a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I got into tech and I had amazing time at Google, but the tech industry still fell like Oxford. Like, I was like, what's up with that? <laughs> like, yeah, there's lots of great smart people here, but what about the people in Lucian that are using Google? That, 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 you know, what about this stuff? And they weren't getting the same access to opportunity. Uh, people that I went to school with who got better grades than me in the maths or the English or whatever, asking me to help them get a job. And I was like, I'm an intern. What, like, how could, like, but why are you coming to me? Like, why is there not someone who's better placed to help you? And, and that was kind of the seed at the back of the mind. So like, I want to be able to help people. Like, I always wanted to, I've always done a bit of philanthropic stuff anyway. Cause like, you know, I feel that the world's bigger than me. Can I give a bit back? Can I help someone from my position? But I always wanted to do that. Um, anyway, the color and tech story then kind of emerges a bit after that. I meet my co-founder, a guy called Dion. He's a, an investor at the time was looking at like some businesses. We end up talking to just black guys in tech. So like, you know, it's like you're on holiday, you see another black person, you're like, oh, who's that? <laughs> like, you know, it's the same kind of thing in our industry. Um, and then we got reached out to it by a university called De Montford, Leicester. Um, that were like, can you help our get our students into tech? And we're like, oh, you know, we know a few people, let's try, why not? At the time I was working for a startup, I'd left Google then. Um, but we basically used the university travel grant and took the students to Silicon Valley. All expenses paid. We were still in economy. There's no like fast thing they did was show the room. Like it was, you know, but we took them out there to try and literally take them to the Googles. Like this is the first time I went, let alone the students went. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We were, we were, we had the opportunity and I used some of my connections and people that I knew in that area to show them around. Sadly, the students didn't get roles. Um, and it really, it's a skills thing. It's really hard to convert an opportunity of talking to a recruiter in Silicon Valley to a job interview in London. Like, mm. that's not easy. You can do it, but it's a skill set. And it's a skill set we hadn't trained those students to have and no one really knew. Like, I could probably do it now. Could I have done that 
at you know at their age at 18 <laughs> i would answer that i probably wasn't even thinking like that mm. like so 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 that was a challenge so we so demofa came to us and we we're basically like can you help support the students etc and we're like yeah we want to but you know we've got time money so like please 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 um and we were talking through a few other universities around this kind of same issue did similar things queen mary's another university we did it with like please can you support the students a bit more and we're like look like we're working. We ain't got time. Like we're trying to help, but that's like I can't. It's not my job to look at hundred CVs. Mm. Um, so then it was like, well, what if we gave you a bit of money to do it? And I was like, it's not about the money. I just don't have the time. It's like, please. We're like, okay, look, we'll take the money. We'll put it into a, a bank account because we obviously had to put it into a bank account. It wasn't for me or Dion. It wasn't a personal thing. So we're like, okay, well, we need a business account to put it in. We're not doing it to make money. So we'll create a not for profit. Put in a not for profit business account. And then we'll use that money to pay someone to do it. So we don't do it. So we did a train the trainer model, basically. Mm. And then that started to work. We hired our first person. They got a role. They started to help the students get roles and it started to be successful. And then that's kind of the genesis from how it started. So to answer your question, it wasn't a grand plan, but there were moments in my life which led me to this point, if that makes sense. Um, and in a way, it's the best way to start a business. You start a business with someone literally begging you to give and giving you money to do it. Like, like what a good opportunity at that point. You know, I was still working another job, did that for a few years, scaled it. And then, um, I mean, we can come on to this a bit more in depth, but yeah, then I, then I, then I, yeah, decided to move on and kind of do it full time. Yeah. It's very organic. It sounds like then. Yeah. It wasn't, I never, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur, um, the lessons that I learned about how to do it, I'm still learning now. But um, I learned a lot in the startup I worked for. That was, in a way, the best job I ever had and the challenge, most challenging job. But I learned more in those two and a half years than I've learned, <sighs> apart from doing my own business, probably. Like, you know, I could have worked for some of the companies I've worked for for 10 years and not learned half of what I learned in that time. Um, and yeah, it was organic. It wasn't a grand plan. But I think... I always, I'm a big believer in that like, you engineer serendipity. I, I I don't like the word luck sometimes because it sounds too random. And I think there are lots of things that we can do as people to have agency in our lives to make things happen. So whether it's like, oh, it was lucky that I met that person. Yeah, but you put yourself in the room or that place to meet that person. And that was agency. So it's like, oh, yeah, I bumped into this person who knew this opportunity. And there's times in my life where that's happened. But I had to make myself go to that event. I had to be in the room to do those things. Mm. So yeah, it might be fortune, but I don't necessarily just think it's pure like randomness. I don't subscribe a lot of like success down to just luck. I think there's fortune and people can engineer more of that for themselves. Like, you know, if I just sat at home for the next five years and didn't leave, not meet anybody, my business is going to be less successful. But if I'm out there doing things, it's going to be more successful. That's not luck. I'm making that happen. Yeah. You're putting yeah. yourself in the right place, basically. Making yeah. sure you're literally in the mix to be able to, yeah, exactly. meet people and do exactly. what you've got to do. So yeah, I might bump yeah. into someone who, may, you know, there's a lucky incident there, but I've manufactured myself being more likely to do those things, and that mm. isn't luck. Yeah, uh, with most of our audience, they're going to be people who are interested either in entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, driving some sort of change in some ways, doing something quite entrepreneurial, basically, mm. in their life or in their community. And there's a few things I wrote down, like a few. Um, key topics or themes that I thought would be quite interesting to explore, um, primarily around color and tech and scaling the business and that kind of thing. Um, and to start things off actually on that front, yeah. So 
Colouring Tech, you guys started in 2016. Yeah. You co-founded it with Dion. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like, so you guys sort of met and then it's not like you were friends for years before. No, 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 yeah. met and then started the business, basically. We met, kind of spent a year talking about diversity in tech and just like some of the problems with ping articles back or forth or whatever. But it was kind of a year. It was a bit, I don't want to say like dating, but like... <laughs> Co-founder dating. Yeah, you just, call it, yeah. yeah, chatting, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so I asked her, because a lot in, the, in this uh, business world, especially when it comes to the world of VC and stuff, a lot of venture capitalists say that they like to invest into companies that where there's at least two people. They don't like investing into yeah, solo for sure. people. And there's two, there were two of you guys who started this thing up, the mm. social enterprise. And it's interesting to understand, well, first of all, how you it's not like you knew each other from childhood, because I hear different angles from mm, people mm. want or you should know they're from there or you should start a business first like a test business then do it blah 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 whatever everyone has a different viewpoint um, but I'm also interested to understand what the dynamic is like between you two as co-founders like do you wear different hats and then how do you deal with disagreements I'm sure there has been some differences of opinion along yeah, of the course. way like how do you how do you what's the dynamic like? how do you deal with that when you guys have differences of opinion yeah like I think we are both fortunate that we work quite well together I think um like we we have different strengths and some similarities actually in terms of strengths. I think we both are quite strategic in terms of we have we're always thinking about the horizon, not just all today. Um I'm my expertise is quite good operationally. Like I used to run programs and that's kind of my background in terms of what I've always done. I used to work in customer success effectively. So I do more of that for the business. Um when we started dealing with I suppose a bit more experience in doing like the sales element of it and kind of building corporate strategic relationships. So he did more of that stuff and I've kind of got better at that over time. Um, and, um, and yeah, a lot of conversation. Like I think like, like I'd say I lost a relationship because of like this, this situation, like the sacrifices that we would make, for example, I was on holiday with my friend's birthday last week. Um, and I was up at X amount of time, like on a phone call to Dion, because we have our calls every Sunday. Um, why? Because it's the only time which we can guarantee we'll both relatively be free. Like, you know, in the business world, Saturday night, Friday night's not a great time, is it? Like, we're doing stuff Monday to Friday because we're working. So, and now we work full time on it, but do you know what I mean? Like, we have our strategy sessions on a Sunday and like we used to have them at six, seven o'clock on a Sunday and they'd go maybe from seven till 10 p.m. every week. Like, that's additional time that will commit into the business and it made sense. But it meant that my other half was like, what are you, do- what are you doing at that time? Like, why are you not spending it with me? And like, that's, that's, do you know what I mean? That was detrimental to, to the quality time that I could have been spending in that situation. So, so that was, I think being intentional and spending a lot of time and talking, like we don't always agree on things, but I think we, we can try and remove our, we're good at removing our ego from situations. It's not about right or wrong. It's just about what do we think and you know like sometimes we all disagree and i think it's about going through the logic like what is what's the logic behind this argument can we get there let's you know we'll fully test each other's logic and then but i think we're humble enough or good enough to understand that yeah sometimes you're not going to be right sometimes not going to be right sometimes that's not the battle worth fighting sometimes it's the thing but we try and work really collaboratively we're quite consensus driven like it's very rare one of us will go off and make a decision without kind of talking or consulting to the other one on on something certainly big or strategic and then, you know, you build, as you build consensus, it might take longer, but you build less friction. And like, that's been really important for us, especially because we work quite asynchronously during the pandemic. I think the two years where we didn't really actually physically see each other, it's probably the same for a lot of businesses when you're working remotely, but we were kind of remote first from the beginning. So it didn't feel like a big change. It was just like the normal, but that's why we had to spend so much time on the phone. 
So yeah, I talk to Dion probably more than I talk to anybody else in my life. <laughs> and like, that might be a problem at some points to some people. And it, it was that point for me, um, probably for him as well. <laughs> but, um, but you know, we're building a business and that's where we get to. And now we don't need to do that as much. We still spend a lot of quality time, obviously, but, um, fortunately now we've got a team. So it's not all just down to us. You know, when we started out, it was, everything was us. What have you learned about leading a team? Um, you know, like the hip hop song, more money, more problems. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's more people, more problems. <laughs> um, yeah, because if you have more money, you hire more people, you have less money as well. So it's not even more money, more people. Um, yeah, look, that's a nut that's really hard to crack and it's actually a really important one. Like, I think most businesses, ultimately, it's about the people. Um, and when you work in really high-performing teams, and I've been fortunate at different points in my career that I have, you can kind of take it for granted and it's not until you work in situations where you're not performing all at that level where you really realize it and like that can be really challenging in a business and it's hard like you don't want to always like let people go or you, you know you you want to invest time people managing but you've also got to you know, do payroll or listen to clients or go to that meeting or do something else so you can't always dedicate the time to things and I think it's a constant battle um I try and be as available as I can I try and make myself a manager which I wanted to have or that I've had that I respected and model myself and previous managers that I've had the pros and the cons but you know I'm sure um you know I'm not perfect in that instance as well I know I'm not so um yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's not one that I always think we've got right. Um, but yeah, we have to learn like everybody else. And I am fortunate that, you know, we've got some really great people in the business right now that are able to, um, yeah, drive what we want to do forwards. And my role is actually to kind of get out of the way and kind of facilitate them. That's how I see it. I don't want to be the no person. I just want to challenge their thinking so it's at the level that we need to move forwards and then create the opportunity whether it be the money or the partnerships or whatever it is so that they can go and execute on what they want to do that's kind of how i see it yeah yeah you know you, did you see that extend ventures um report it, yeah, I think yeah it came out 2019 so it might be slightly outdated but there's a new one coming in december fyi oh, great <laughs> great so but we'll look at the on the 2019 one the two biggest issues that black entrepreneurs, black British entrepreneurs were having were one, marketing, or in other words, scale, trying to grow their business, and two, funding. Yeah. And they're two things that you and you and the team have managed to do successfully thus far with Colour in Tech. Uh, if we touch upon the scale side of things first, mm. so you said that you and uh, Dion used to have these strategizing calls every single Sunday for hours on end. Mm. And strategy. We still do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still, you're still, still having these, stra these strategic calls every single week. And that was there like a particular strategy or something that you think you and the team done right that helped you to achieve the level of scale you have over this period of time? Yeah, I think there's a few things. I think one is um, kind of almost a constant focus on like the customer, if that makes sense. So like from our perspective, even when we started, the universities were like basically like giving us a little bit of cash. We always knew we wanted to flip the business model. Always like for us to reach a certain scale, for us to have the money to do what we want to do, corporates need to pay for it. So we spent probably six to nine months really pivoting or working out how to find a model which would work. And then kind of seeing about that product market fit. Again, like working for probably another year on top of that to make sure we were delivering stuff. I come from it from a consulting background, so it's like a problem solving almost. Like, how do we, how do we do that? But I think part of it is that we always, I always say, you know, we never took money from government or, you know, we had grants, but our business was never founded or run on the grant because 
we needed to say, even when it dried up, and it did dry up, you know, COVID times, there's lots of money for everybody. You know, <laughs> literally, you could, you could even pretend you had PPE and don't give it to you. Do you know what I mean? And now, like, so when the grant funding goes, can you still run a business? Do you still have enough cash flow and money? And like, for that, you have to be building something that um, is providing value and is for your customers. And there's a business case for it. Like, no one wakes up in the morning, oh, I say no one, 99.9% of people in businesses don't wake up in the morning and be like, how am I going to give money to black people? And we're fortunate there are still a few <laughs> and they are there. And, you know, but that, so, so someone's got to always have, think about what's the business case. Are we seeing the value from this partnership or this investment? Because, you know, my budget can be spent somewhere else and someone's going to lose it. Or when there are cuts, like, should we cut this thing? And from our perspective, it was always about making sure that we're building something that we could say that we could answer that question to like our clients will fund this from their businesses from the money that they're generating because it's generating money back to them so it was really closely aligned to that and we didn't do things where we didn't feel like we were adding value we didn't do things which we thought were a bit tenuous or nice to have we always really focused on like it's got to come from the business um so i think that's one of them and then shall I touch on the funding one? Yeah, let's go into the funding. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of complicated because we've never mm. taken venture capital funding. Um, one is probably because of structure, but not necessarily because we couldn't. Maybe in an alternative world or maybe in the future, maybe we'll spin part of our business out and we do. Like I've been around founders that have raised enough or VCs that invest enough. So I think we could, we could achieve something there, but you've got to have the proposition. And I think, um, in the absence of being able to do that, I think we've probably built a stronger business as a result because, as I said, we had to go back to that thing. We had to effectively bootstrap. So we always had to make money. Like, you know, if we weren't making it, where was it coming from? It wasn't coming from, you know, some sort of debt or equity or like some fake capital effectively. So all of our customers pay everything that we do. It's meant that we've grown more slowly, but it's meant that we've always had to have a business good solution, something that was ready to operate for our big clients or for our small clients or whatever it was in a service business effectively, because we wouldn't have the money otherwise. So in a way, we've we've always got good renewable revenue and it's not a given, like, you know what I mean? Like we still have to work hard for it. It's not gonna, if I stop working for six months, it's not gonna come magically. Like we, you know, we have to keep doing that. But the idea is that we've always had something which is fine for the businesses, which has meant that we've never been reliant on those sources of funding because we've bootstrapping. And like, you know, even if you're, got X amount of money on VC. What do your VCs want to see? Like your customers are paying you and that you've got a product that they want to pay for. Like their money's to help you get there. But we've, we're there in that sense. So, you know, that's what we want to do. That's what we continue to do. And I'm really fortunate that, you know, in the years that we've worked, we've got deals from, you know, some of the world's biggest companies, literally Google, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon. We sold to the big tech companies in the world. And, you know, yeah, they give money away. But as I said, we don't, we don't, we're not chasing that money. We're chasing the business money with the money that they don't give away. Um, the money that we have to earn and work hard for. And that's what we want to build our business around because it's going to mean that we've got a better product service solution and the market will keep us honest. You know, if people don't want to fund us, we've got to ask the question about are we doing enough? Are we doing the right thing? And that will mean that we build a more stronger, robust business moving forward. You know, when you talk about the funding side of things, actually, um, on the because I, I read it was yeah from google um $250,000 or yeah, pounds yeah, yeah. um 250k in whatever currency is, is a significant amount yeah, anyways yeah, yeah. And it was the largest grant that they'd ever given at that point in time right yeah 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 
is there, and then you've had to, you seems like you guys have been hyper-focused and you've had to, you know, maybe mm. pivot a bit here and there at the start just to make sure you've got a good, good product that will work with these corporates you wanted to work with. Mm. Is there a particular way in which you approach these corporates? Like, like how? <laughs> you just yeah. emailed a help at Google. No, 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 no. <laughs> Again, that doesn't happen. It's serendipity. Like, long story short, when we were doing one of those trips over to California, um, one of the organizations that we partnered with, and when I say partnered, we reached out to them cold and were like, you're doing some interesting things. We got connected to them and we're like, we want to take our students to see what you're doing. There's good practice there, there's good work. One of those were funded by Google Org. So the guy at Google Org came along and saw, you know, what we were doing. And then actually the California company called Hidden Genius Project, for anyone who doesn't know, fundamental in the story. They came over to the UK to see, we got inspired by them. We were like, let's do something similar. They came along to support and do that. They said to their Google people, why don't you have a look at what we're doing? Anyway, they liked it. Um, and um, yeah, Google reached out to us actually. Um, and we're like, yeah, effectively, like, you know, what would you do if we gave you a grant? Um, 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 one of the best emails I've ever had, you know, like literally imagine that popping in your inbox, like, like, what do you do? So obviously, you know, again, they're not just giving it away. So we had to come up with a proposal about what we do. We have to show that we're able to execute it. But again, it took someone to take a punt because it wasn't the first time that they'd done this outside of North America. And, you know, people give like companies like Google a lot of stick, but Google in particular, they were always doing stuff. I say always doing, they were doing stuff earlier than other people were doing it. Like they get a lot of slack, but they're out there doing it, batting for it before other people thought that they should be doing it. And I always give them credit for that. Um, and they can have continued to do that throughout good, bad, et cetera, et cetera. They don't, no one's perfect. No one gets everything right, but they do a lot more than a lot of other people who aren't getting stuff right as well. Um, and yeah, we basically had to come up with that proposal. And um, yeah, it took someone, as I said, to wake up that morning and be like, we're going to do that for that organization. Um, someone had to take that opportunity. Um, and it turns out that that somebody was somebody that we met, or that I personally met five years ago when I was like in university. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and talked about serendipity. That was when I was doing some voluntary work. I was helping judge an award category for a humanitarian project and Google Org were one of the, the, um, the, I don't suppose other judges on that panel. So the guy, and I won't mention his name specifically, but they, they saw that I was committed to doing some of this work before there was any money on the table, before I was, you know, fully formed human, if you get what I mean. Mm -hmm. I was committed to trying to help people, trying to do things, trying to think about how we could further success in the community. So when it was a question about are these people credible, are these people passionate, are these people the white people to back? Well, he'd been able to see that for five years. I wasn't pitching that, but it goes back to that serendipity. I was on my LinkedIn and I was active on that so people could see the journey, even if they weren't talking to them. I was in that room all that time ago. If I didn't go to that thing, it might have never have happened. I was mm. going to be very different. So how do you engineer that? It might have been lucky, it might have been fortunate, it might have been what? But I also put my hand up and said, I wanted to do that thing. I was like, I want to do that thing in particular and I wanted to make it happen. Um, so, so that was part of that. So, and then how do we go about doing it now? Um, well, I think maybe the better lessons are about like, what do we do in the early days? And again, it's about putting yourself in the situation. We had to do good work. That was the first thing we had to do good work. And one show the people at the Google that they were good to back what we were doing initially and that they, that was a good use of their money and time and energy. And then we invited people that we wanted to show that good work too. 
Um, so they would see that we're doing good work and they would see that we're working with some companies and they would see that there's more that they could potentially do if they helped us. You mean like potential sponsors, you mean? Yeah, potential sponsors, potential partners. And where we didn't know them, well, we would try and find ways to go to them. You know, people have events, whether it's like Black History Month and there's a, a showcase or an office event, you know, when we still do that, you know, effectively it's BD or go to conferences and meeting people. But it's a B2B land. You've got to go and build those relationships. So from our perspective... It's about going to where our potential customers or prospects are um, and always having something good to talk to them about and show them. So we have to do good work, whether we're making money from it or not. And we always have to, you know, be intentional about putting ourselves in the right situations because, you know, I'll go to Web Summit, as I mentioned next week, don't know who I'm going to meet, but what can I talk about? The good work that we're doing and now, thankfully, who we're working with. And that hopefully will mean that we have good conversations when I'm out there. Um so, so yeah, I think, especially from a B2B business perspective, it's really important for a founder or BD or whatever you are to be out there. You are selling your product. And we don't have no marketing budget. We don't have a Google ad spend. You know, we didn't have these things. We don't have VC money to go and hire five marketers for our team. You know, the social media was us. Like, we had to be out there doing it. And before we had like a brand channel, let's just use our own personal channels in order to to market our work effectively. And, you know, we had a network because personally we were developing it. And one thing I'd always say to whoever's at the start of their career, but all the way throughout their career, always keep growing and working on that. You never know who's going to see what you're up to or come or change jobs and then you become relevant or whatever it is. Connect with people, even if it is just on LinkedIn or whatever, but spam people don't like forcefully connect but you know make being intentional to show off what you do and, and build those networks and those relationships and then um yeah hopefully good things come out of that let's take it back a little bit yeah so we're talking about this money the raising money things and i think that's an important topic just because it's like one of the things that black founders tend to um, struggle on the most mm. um and you had the, the opportunity somewhat came to you or Satan came to you and the team, I should say, but obviously you had to put together a proposal and make it happen at the same time. Mm. Did you ask for 250k or was it, did you just do a 250k proposal? Like, so, um, and they said, oh, this, yeah. this is what it's going to require. Here's a grant. Yeah, there's two things. Um, the initial kind of email was like, give us a proposal for some of the things that you'd like to do. Um, so kind of almost, uh, Almost a blank check email, if you get what I mean. Give me your ideas. Give you the sorts of things that you'd like to do. And then, you know, obviously for us, we have to like cost that up and work out what's feasible and what's practical. Um, and I'd always say this to anyone who's doing BD, you know, shoot for stars, you might hit the moon. You know, like, <laughs> you, you need to build something big and visionary. You have to get people to buy into the vision, really. You don't want to fall into the trap of being a commodity play. You know, if people are just comparing you line by line cost item to the other tool, like that's, that's dangerous. That's chaffing business because, you know, there could be something better than you. There could be something more optimal. It could be something cheaper. Like you don't want to get into that. I'm in a shopping aisle. Do I like that apple or this apple? <laughs> that's not how you want people to think about your business. You want people to buy into you as a founder. And when you don't necessarily have your product to show, as I say, you've got to be that salesperson. But then you also want people to buy into where you're going. You know, it's whether it's politics or business. You know, people want to believe in something. People want to feel that their lives or their product or their their jobs are going to be better in X period of time because of the work that you're doing together. And that's what we needed to sell. So for us, it was like, yeah, we asked for more um, because we we're ambitious. We have visions. I mean, you know, someone could say, I have 25 million. I'd give them a proposal for 100. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? The, the, the plan is we always want to do more. 
Do you know what I mean? So in a way, you know, you give that and then it's kind of for other people to tell you no. You know, I'm very conscious that, you know, in the world of B2B business, especially with some of the, you know, the big tech companies out there, they're a lot richer than I am. Do you know what I mean? Like, obviously, everyone's got a budget, but go on the, you know, could go on their websites. You can see how much money they have. So why am I going to scrimp? Like, do you know what I mean? I'm going to staff things properly. I'm going to make sure that we can deliver because it goes back to the quality work. I'm not going to promise to do stuff which we can't deliver or it's going to drain the team of kill the battery that's not to say we won't work hard but the work hard that delta comes in over delivery not in to deliver you have to be able to resource things properly because otherwise you're going to develop worse product solutions services and people will notice that if you can't live up to their expectations that's how to lose business any additional work you should be doing is over delivery and if you find yourself constantly chasing your tail just to deliver on your obligations that's not a great place to be in for too long so for us yeah it's like yeah, if someone's saying that we've got this money, even if someone tells us that we've only got 20k, like we still give them an option for 25 or 30k because you got to give them the side, give, give them the vision, I mean, they could find give them a reason to go back and say, I want that extra five or that 20 percent or whatever it is, or like you know, you want them to say, Okay, we can't do it this year, but I really like that idea, so next year I want to make that happen. You've got to constantly shoot for that, and you've also, you know, got to make sure that if it does happen and in times it has happened that you've asked for enough that you can deliver on things. Yeah. You know, you don't want to promise the world and then you've only asked for the moon and then you've got to build that rocket from Mars to Jupiter. You know, you've got to, you've got to get there. So, yeah, I always say shoot for a bit more because the worst that they come back is with something smaller and then, okay, well, you can reduce the scope then. Yeah. On this networking piece, you touched upon it before. That's something that I've heard a lot of people say is important. And then I've, have you know worked on developing my own network but an issue that i have and i don't know if anybody else that's listening has it is that you can develop you can go to the events you can shoot messages out on linkedin or whatnot connect with people mm -hmm. initially but then it's that maintaining that relationship afterwards mm. you know like it's like you don't want it to be inorganic you don't want to check in i don't know randomly at high and then you know how do you yeah, yeah, yeah. actively if you're not in the same space you're not seeing them in your place of work you might not be seeing them at the same events for example like, I don't know if you have that kind of issue. Do you have, how do you Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think, we don't need to over-egg it. Like, people are people and people understand, like, you know, I don't want to be reached out to if it's irrelevant. Um, mm. You know, reach out in a tiny manner. Oh, you've got something new to tell me or you're excited about something or there's something going on that I can add value to. It's a really good question to ask for people's advice rather than for them to do things. Like, I'm really interested in your advice about how I would approach the big four companies in consulting because you work for big four. Okay, that's a different conversation to, yeah, can you connect me to Jane Bloggs who works in this? You know, mm, mm. think about how you do that. But we don't need to over-engineer things. People get so many messages, so many stuff like that. Again, have a way that you can show what you're doing tacitly because people see it People see it as well. Like, again, talk about like LinkedIn as a platform. Are you active on it to the point that, you know, you might not necessarily be keeping in touch with somebody every month, but, you know, when they log in, you're the first thing that they see and you're doing something good and you've got good engagement. And, like, people see that. You know, and, and so when you reach out, it's not a surprise. People kind of know what you've been up to because they can kind of see it. Like, so, so, so there is that. I think there's nothing wrong with just maintaining a relationship, just saying, you know, maybe every three or six months, I'm going to go for a coffee with that person. I'm just going to go and grab time or lunch or let's do a breakfast if, you know, you've got other commitments in the day or whatever it is. Um, you know, d doing those things and, and, and yeah, like just leaving a good impression. I don't mind if I've not spoken to someone in a year and they reach out to me if it's with the right thing and we've had good interactions before. Like, you know, if someone wants some of my time, it's like, 
TBC because if all you want to do is like pick my brains, I like just have free consultancy. No, 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 no. <laughs> time you know is precious. I mean? Yeah, time yeah. is precious. People pay me for that. Do you get what I'm saying? But like, I'm far more likely to give someone someone at the time if they're like they want my advice on how to do something. Um, it's why I kind of create color and tech because you know <laughs> I can I can point them to something. But you know, I'm far more likely to to give that time if I thought there's a value there. And if I can't give that time there, um, you know, if someone wants to take you for a breakfast or a lunch, like I'm more likely to do that as well. Um, you know, everyone likes food. Everyone's got to eat at some point of the day. Like maybe maybe I'm happy to do it. I work at the gym though. I say work at the gym. I go gym. So lunch is usually a no for me. Breakfast I don't like morning, so I'm still touchy on it. But you know, if you're offering those things, and you want to have a coffee or have a catch up. Yeah, like, you know, maybe we can put some time in. It might not be next week, but, you know, in three months' time, maybe, maybe yeah, let's put a flag in the sand now and, you know, we can make it happen. So, you know, you're not always going to be accessible. You're not always going to be able to do that for everybody. But if you're one of those people that I feel that in a transactional way will add value to what I'm doing or is a good person to stay connected to because I see that you're doing good things, I'm far more likely to want to make that time. Um, You know, and I think it goes back to that analogy which people are saying, would you rather have half a mil of time uh, half a meal or you know lunch with jay-z so although people talk about half a meal is because you have no value to add like they have no value like i would always take the lunch because i could create more than half a meal in an hour with jay-z <laughs> for both of us like that's why I, that's why i'd want the, the, the lunch you know, I, you know half a meal like you know just from that the, the opportunity is better but you have to be able to add value so what value are you adding to these people as well and i kind of think you know if you're reaching out to people and networking and there's no value that you can add that's 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 a hard thing um you know what value can you add if you could go back um back to 2016 when you founded it part of tech up until now is there anything that you do differently um really great question um it might sound a bit harsh but i trust myself more or my gut more on people decisions um whether that's like hiring or firing frankly like i think when you speak to a really seasoned like business leaders over time they're like yeah they make decisions far more decisively and sometimes it can feel a bit harsh or sometimes you can be a bit like wow that was a bit like and i've been in organizations where it's happened but having been on the other side of it now you're like yeah we ain't got money to burn like you know what i mean or like you know we need to do this quickly let's go for it like i think there's been times where we've potentially like hesitated more than we should have done in hindsight and it can sound a bit horrible if i think about it that way but if I think about it the other way, then like if I'm doing the right thing for the business, it shouldn't feel like that. And I'm not a horrible person. I don't like dislike people that I work with or anything like that. But and I make mistakes too. Like maybe I've hired the wrong people, or maybe I've not hired the right people, um, or maybe I've done both at times. As I said, it's a mixture. Like you know, it's a mixed bag sometimes. But when you make the wrong decision, being decisive about it is probably something we haven't done as quickly as as we should have done. Um, and that's, if I'm just being honest, one of the things that I'll probably go back and tell my younger self to, to, to do or, you know, in the benefit of hindsight. But it's hard learning. I, you know, I wasn't, I still don't know if I've got it right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, but I know where we've got some things wrong. I'm like, yeah, like, I can recognize that. Cool. Great. And as we prepare to wrap up, alas, it's been a great conversation, but we got to wrap up. And, um, Final questions to wrap things up. Uh, what advice would you give to someone who's wanting to start up some kind of a purpose-driven 
business or initiative or something like that. They wanted to drive some sort of change, basically, mm-hmm. either in their life, in their community, in the world. What advice would you give to someone like that? No. I was almost like, don't look for the problem. Like, the world's got lots of problems. You don't need to be searching hard for the problem. Always wait for the problem to come to you because you might then be pretty good, well-placed to actually do something about it. <laughs> like, um, you know, there's loads of things that we could do in the world, but like, I'm not the best person to bring, like, world peace or I'm not the best person to, you know make a cure for cancer or what, you know, I'm not that best person as much as I'd love to be help, able to help people in those other ways. But maybe I am a good person to help you get a job. Uh, like, you know, maybe that, that that's what I can add the value. And I think a lot of people, when they want to do social good, they they look for problems and try and attach themselves to them. And that's kind of easy to an extent because there are lots of them. But kind of almost think a bit differently, like where am I best placed to solve that problem? Um, that's one thing I'd do. And then the second thing is network. Honestly, the, the most valuable thing that I've built is my professional network. Even if this business, whatever we're doing, doesn't work out, I will be fine because of the network that I've built. And that gives me so much more safety net to have a risk appetite that otherwise I wouldn't have. Like, I I have a mortgage. I don't necessarily worry about being able to pay that because, great, we've built a business where I can pay myself, and that's fantastic. But even if that went all sour and I wasn't able to continue running the business, I know that I've got a good enough network that I can probably land myself in a good job and a good opportunity outside of that, or maybe set up the next thing that I could do and someone would back me to do that. And that comes from a habit. Like, I was able to build that safety net because I don't have financial wealth in my family. I don't have, like, you know, a uh, parent's house that I can kind of just go and live back in or all these other things. I've had to build that, and I suppose the way that I've built that safety net for myself is by having a good network of people that... I can message and will reply, frankly. And that's hopefully because they feel like there's value that I can add or that I'm a intelligent person that's got good questions that can come up with solutions and that can help them on what things that they're working on. And, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do in the future. I don't know totally what the plan is. I've got a few ideas, but... Um, you know, if you ask someone a crystal ball about where you're going to be in 2050, and, oh, God you know what I mean? Like, can't think about 20, 20, 25 minutes. But the, the, the point is that I know I should be okay because of some of this groundwork that I've put into building that network. Um, and, you know, that's one thing that I'd say to a lot of people when they're looking about how to progress in their career. Are you well networked enough so even if it's not in your current company, you can move into something well enough? You don't just have to apply for a job like that. You can bring someone and talk to them about a job. It's a kind of different vibe, but like when you get to that level, you stop job hunting, jobs start to hunt you. Um, and yeah, I always say, I never want to, I, I never apply for another job again. Like, you know, what I mean, I'm not doing an application form like that. I'm not, they take forever. Yeah, like, I'm not doing that, but I, I shouldn't need to. Because I know good people, I know people in this day. I work with a lot of hiring managers. Like I should be able to have a conversation. Someone would be like, that's a good opportunity for you. Let me put you in touch. So if I am filling an application, it's it's a processing. It's not because that's the route to success. So build the network. That's it. Great. Thank you for coming out once again. Great conversation. Um, if people want to keep up to date with yourself, with Color and Tech, the Black Tech Fest, how can they best do so? So um, I'm on LinkedIn. My name's Ashley Ainsley. You can find it. A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H though. A lot of people think it's L-E-Y and I will correct you if you get it wrong. Um, <laughs> in terms of our social handles, Colour in Tech um, on Instagram, TikTok, same with Black Tech Fest on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, same for Colour in Tech. Colour in Tech org on X or it's formerly known as Twitter because someone got there first. Um, <laughs> but, you know, maybe Elon will sort that out for us one day. Um, but yeah, just find us, type in Colour in Tech on Black Tech Fest on any search engine and we'll come up at the top. Perfect. And uh, have you got any final words before we close up? 
Thanks for listening. I hope this is valuable. Please reach out. Look, if we color and tech can help you, I literally set up to try and help people. So um <laughs> even if we can't, like let me know why we can't, because I'm 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 super keen to think that we can hopefully build something that's 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 available for people. So yeah, thank you and thank you as well for for reaching out and making this happen. I really do appreciate the platform. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming down. I appreciate it. Amazing conversation, loads of gems to query, a lot of stuff. So thank you once again for coming to the podcast. But that's that for now. This is 1000 Voices. We had Ashley on the podcast. And for now, people, we're out.